Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. This is MPB News. Hi, this is Karen Brown. Thanks for checking out the Mississippi Edition podcast. If you like what you hear, click subscribe, hit like, or leave us a comment if your app has that feature. Then find other MPB podcasts by searching MPB Think Radio on your favorite podcasting platform. Thanks. Good morning. It's 8.30 on Thursday, February 27th. I'm Karen Brown, and this is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. On today's show, the debate over Medicaid and TANF scrutiny moves to the House. And Mississippi's gun reform advocates support a red flag bill. Then, in today's book club, a Mississippi novelist tells us the story of a small town, once peaceful, but now a landscape of fear, violence, and regret. That's all coming up. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. A bill that would allow the state auditor to examine the tax returns of people who receive federal benefits continues to generate controversy in the Mississippi legislature. Senate Bill 2257 appeared in the House Ways and Means Committee this week and was met with much of the same discord it received on the Senate floor. This is being done out of a federal mandated law. Uh, the 2019 compliance statement states that state auditors should be able to examine the state tax returns. This is not going to affect anyone that is aged, disabled, or blind. Um, those people are not. It's going to be based on the income level. So what they're going to do is pull a random sample of state income tax returns, less than 5%, and they can compare it to what was put on the application. And well, I just want to clear up something. I, I met with the state auditor, and you said that it was a federal mandate, and he cleared it up for me. It, was, it is not a federal mandate. It was a recommendation. And it comes, the supplement actually reads that they may uh, uh, conduct these audits and look into them. He chooses to, which is fine. I think he should be being vigilant and making sure he does that. But uh, there is no federal mandate, and that's pursuant to what the, uh, and I'm looking at the document. It's not a mandate. It's in a supplement that, that makes suggestions. And gentlemen, the quiet statement said the auditor should test eligibility. When the, when the federal government says you should do something and we receive a three-to-win max, we don't want to risk the loss of federal funds because our state definitely needs these funds to help take care of these individuals. And it's not going to affect anybody that doesn't qualify. It's going to affect anybody that doesn't qualify. Yeah, that's, that, that, that wasn't my question, though. I, I just want to clear up because the statement has been going around the Capitol and been reported as a federal mandate. You just cleared that up. It's not a mandate. It's a recommendation found in the supplement. The House Ways and Means Committee passed Senate Bill 2257 and will appear before the full House for vote. Republican Joey Hood chairs the House Medicaid Committee and supports the measure. He tells MPB's Desiree Frazier the bill shows the state is protecting the integrity of the Medicaid program. If it's a discrepancy between what they put on the application and their income tax return, then the auditor's office will notify the Division of Medicaid and they'll do a further investigation. Upon investigation, if the individual had lost their job 
for some reason would be eligible, then they will continue their Medicaid benefits. But if they had put down income, which would not make them qualify on their income tax return, but did on their if there's a discrepancy between the tax return and the application, then they'll have a process which they can appeal that with Medicaid. This has been uh, presented as a federal mandate by different uh, legislators, and it came up in this meeting that it is not a federal mandate, that it is in the supplement, and it is suggested. This is what we're going to have to do from the compliance. There's a 2019 compliance statement that said we should be auditing. The state's required, the auditor's office is required to submit something to the federal government. Of course, we received a three-to-one match, and what this does is protect the integrity of the system. It's not going to affect the aged, disabled, or blind. It's just going to be an income-based thing, and it's going to be just another tool in the toolbox to check eligibility. That way we can ensure that the funds that for Mississippi's most poor will be where they're supposed to be and go to them. Critics are saying, why now, especially in the midst of having a situation of a $4 million embezzlement case involving the Department of Health, you know, the Department of Human Services, involving officials? Well, I think we as a government need to look at, uh, continue to investigate. We are. Uh, Division of Medicaid continues to audit. We've got the Attorney General's Division that audits, and this is just another tool in the toolbox to comply that we're in compliance with federal guidelines. And so this is what was sent out in September. All the state auditors across the nation have decided this is part of the best practices, and so we're going to see where it goes from here. Any concern that uh, it in any way criminalizes the poor? That's what we're hearing from advocates who fear that. I think this is just going to be a check to see whether or not their application meets up with what they put on their state tax return. And it's just an eligibility question. And so we're going to try to maximize all of our dollars that go into Medicaid to make sure they're going to the people which meet the parameters of the state Medicaid program. House Medicaid Chair Joey Hood is a Republican from Ackerman. Challenging the measure is Democrat Robert Johnson, who serves on the House Ways and Means Committee. He tells our Desiree Frazier he's concerned the bill will create fear among poor people who need assistance. The first thing that, that concerns me and I'd like to stop is that the auditor and some of the people uh, fostering this legislation have said there's a federal mandate that says we have to audit the recipients of Medicaid. It's, that's not what it is. There is a federal supplement that talks about things that the auditor can do to help the program run more efficiently. And it, it, it speaks to it in a way that says if, if you deem it necessary or if you think it needs to be done. And they, they reason that because we get so much money and matching funds that that's something that we need to that the auditor has to do it. Well, it's interesting that it comes on the heels of these arrests on people stealing millions of dollars of TANF funds. And we feel like, and I feel like, it's, it's a result of political pressure to say, oh, you're going after, you're going after Republicans. Uh, now you need to go after people who are receiving benefits. Now, Medicaid benefits, are, is not, they're not money. It's, it's, it's tantamount to a person said, okay, I'm sick. I think I need some health care. I'm going to go to the doctor. It's going to make me well. That's all you get. And so the, the idea that somebody is, is, is <laughs> running the risk of cheating on their, their, inc- their tax returns in order to get medicine is just a little, is, is a little bit of a reach. But, you know, I, I don't ever want to discourage the auditor, given that he's finally listening and everybody's being aware of what we've been talking about and what people have been doing with TANF funds. We've been a, we, the way they've been running the TANF program has been abhorrent. Not just in the things that they found to be illegal, but they're just, but the money that they're actually spending that ought to go to poor people are going to programs that 
fashion themselves to be something that's, that are helping people, and they're really not. So that, that's the reason I have a problem with this. But the other thing is that this is this is like saying uh, you can't vote unless you have a voter ID. Uh, these are the kind of things that discourage people who are trying to uh, trying to access a program that 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 is made available to them. And so if you start auditing people and they think, oh, I, I, if I go get medicine, they're going to see my tax returns and I may get in trouble, even though they don't they don't have any reason to do that, it just makes people fearful. And we don't want to discourage people from being in the program. We want to encourage them to be in the program. And that's the danger. And then we're probably going to spend a couple hundred thousand dollars or more doing an audit and an investigation to find possibly one or two people. That's been our experience. When, when the uh, public health passed a bill to test Medicaid recipients, drug test them, we spent a, over $180,000 to find like 10 or 12 people all over the state that may have had a, a drug problem. You mentioned that you've worked in the Attorney General's office in the Medicaid Fraud Division. I did. I was an investigator, and I was an attorney with the AG's office when I came out of law school. And we would work in conjunction with the Federal Inspector General's office and the Division of Medicaid. They had their own investigators. And not one time did we spend an ounce of time investigating recipients. There's no value in that for the federal or state government. The money that's wasted or misappropriated or embezzled or not used uh, correctly is money that we actually pay and write checks for. You notice that you talk about auditing the Medicaid program. The audit ought to be taking place with providers. Even he said, no, the money is paid to the providers. What are we looking at recipients for? So that's that's just that's why I just it's a little bit unnerving, a little bit disingenuous, and, and it gives us some concern. Representative Robert Johnson is a Democrat from Natchez. Coming up, Mississippi's gun reform advocates support a red flag bill. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. I'm Allison Walker, the lady auto mechanic, host of AutoCorrect. If you're enjoying this podcast, try my podcast, AutoCorrect. We help steer you in the right direction with your car problems. Find me on any podcast platform or at autocorrect.mpbonline.org. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. I'm Karen Brown. Gun safety activists are urging Mississippi lawmakers to pass a bill that would temporarily take firearms away from people under certain circumstances. Senate Bill 2055, referred to as the Red Flag Law, would allow families or law enforcement to intervene when they believe someone is a threat to themselves or others and has access to guns. Mary Helen Abel is with Mississippi Moms Demand Action for Gun Sense in America. She tells our Desiree Fraser why she supports the bill. It basically says that with adequate due process, guns can be temporarily removed from the hands of someone who shows to be a risk to themselves or to others. Um, so that's something that we know has made huge differences um, in, in gun deaths across the country in the states where it has been enacted. About 17 states have that have a bill. Have a, have a law that's a, an extreme risk protection order. There's a bill um, that's been introduced that would, in case there were any changes in gun laws federally, that Mississippi would be exempt from that. Your thoughts on that? Uh, well, I mean, we we know that 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 that's not something that we can do. Um, so. Um, you know, the, the preemptive bill, and that's what it is. It's a preemptive bill. And it, it is 
The preemptive bill enables guns to be anywhere, everywhere, even in sensitive places where there are children, where there are gatherings of lar large gatherings of people. It would enable people to carry guns in places that, that guns just shouldn't be. There are certain places that guns should never be. Guns should never be in bars. Guns should never be in schools. Guns should never be where, where there are children gathered. And um, it, this preemptive bill would enable, um, would enable people to carry guns whenever and wherever they wanted. Do, uh, do you have uh, friends, close relatives that have been victimized by guns? Uh, yes, sure. One of the things that I had not expected when I started doing this work was the number of people that I would um, come into contact who are directly affected by gun violence. Myself, I've, I've had, um, I have had several, several friends who have died by suicide by guns, um, but not anyone in my immediate family um, who has been, where, who's been directly affected by gun violence. What I have found in doing this work is that almost everyone that I meet has a story. That, that nearly every American, whether it is from a friend who's, who has died by suicide by gun or its immediate family member who has been, who has been shot and killed, are people who have been injured by gun violence. It is everybody has a story. And, and one of the really great things that I'm getting to do is to um, be in community with and to work with um, communities that are affected by gun violence in ways that are different than my own community is. And so I am, it seems like everybody that I meet has a story. And I am, I am learning so much about what gun violence looks like across the country and across the gamut, and especially here in Mississippi. Mary Helen Abel is with Mississippi Moms Demand Action. Lorenzo Neal is an advocate for gun reform with personal connections to gun violence. He says he wants to make sure legislators understand the impact of gun violence on communities. Well, one of the things uh, people forget is how gun violence impacts everyone socially, economically, and uh, legislatively. So we're here to help legislators be aware that gun violence is not just an issue, uh, a bill or anything to be passed, but actual persons and lives are impacted by it and whole communities are impacted by it. The loss of your loved ones due to gun violence, what impact has it had, if any, on you? Well, it's one of the reasons why I do the advocacy work that I do. I share my story across the nation sharing how I've been personally impacted by gun violence with the hopes of helping people understand that uh, persons who are killed through gun violence are not just statistics, but they are humans, and their stories mean something, and their lives mean something, and that every person who has been, uh, whose life has been taken through gun violence still has something to say, and they can make a difference. And their stories, when I share of my mom and my nephew, I'm sharing their life, and with the hopes of impacting, connecting, and gathering empathy for those persons who think we're just trying to take away guns. We live in Mississippi, a state that's very supportive of gun rights. What do you want to see come out of your advocacy? Well, I'm a gun owner, I, so I do not want to see anyone come in and take away my guns. We are, we are pro-Second Amendment. We do not want to take away anyone's gun. Our, our goal here and our, our across this nation is to help persons understand how gun violence impacts individuals, communities. 
Lorenzo Neal is with advocacy group Every Town for Gun Safety. Republican Representative Randy Rushing of Decatur says he'll consider gun safety legislation. His concern, he tells our Desiree Frazier, is people misusing the red flag law. I'm certainly open to anything that would help us with uh, violence in the state. Um, you know, as far as regulating, we'd be very careful not to infringe upon rights. Uh, and, and certainly there are federal laws out there now uh, for background checks on the purchasing of weapons. I think our largest problem personally uh, in the state is uh, illegal access of weapons or people selling to each other. Uh, I, think, uh, I think we've got the process through our uh, retail uh, businesses that sell firearms and at our gun shows that sell our, our businesses that have uh, booths set up at gun shows. All that has to go through the federal uh, background check process. I think our weapons are being uh, accessed illegally and being sold to people who already are breaking the law. And, and, and I'm open to anything we can possibly do to help that issue. Uh, it's just that's a very hard issue to, to get your hands around. There's a bill, a Senate bill, that's a red flag bill that would allow, um, if I'm concerned that someone is a danger to themselves or others, to say that they're guns could be taken through the court process. Do you think that that's a viable way to handle potential uh, violent outbreaks? Well, to start with, I would encourage anyone who has a concern of someone harming themselves or other people to call 911, and we don't need a law right now to do that. Anyone that, that feels threatened or feels like someone else is a threat to themselves or other people can pick up the phone now and call 911. I think we're, we're getting into a gray area when you can have a dispute with your neighbor over a fence line or my dog's barking, keeping them awake at night. Then my neighbor can pick up the phone and say they're scared of me because I own a gun. It creates a you know an opportunity or an avenue, I think, for a lot of vindictive uh, measures to be taken. So we have to be real careful uh, when we are looking at laws for that type of thing to take place. So. Uh, I think the intent maybe uh, have some validity to it, but but I'd be very, very hesitant before I got off into that direction. Even though it would be on a temporary basis? Well, you know, as the old saying goes, there's nothing more permanent than a temporary law. So uh, I'd be very, very hesitant on, on supporting something like that unless we really, really looked at it and got in down into the nitty-gritty of it. Representative Randall Rushing is a Republican from Decatur. Coming up in today's book club, a Mississippi novelist tells us the story of a small town once peaceful, but now a landscape of fear, violence, and regret. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. The 2020 legislative session is underway at the Mississippi State Capitol, and at issue is the place to be for gavel-to-gavel coverage. Lawmakers are expected to discuss a number of issues like criminal justice reform, teacher and state employee pay raises, and workforce development. Join me, Wilson Stribling, along with our political analysts, Brandon Jones and Austin Barber, as we bring you insight on these issues and how lawmakers are handling them. At issue, Friday nights at 7.30 on MPB TV. For moments in black history, we recognize Representative Alice G. Clark. Born in Yazoo City on July 3, 1939, Clark became the first African-American woman elected to the Mississippi legislature in 1985. Best known for leading the efforts to get drug courts in Mississippi and the Alice G. Clark Mississippi Lottery Law approved, currently she is the longest serving woman in the Mississippi legislature. This has been MPB's Moments in Black History. 
This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. I'm Karen Brown. Mississippians are well aware of the invasive plant kudzu that grows seemingly everywhere. The clingy vine plays a major role in the latest novel by Oxford writer Michael Ferris-Smith. Southern Gothic in tone, Blackwood takes place in a small, dying Mississippi town. The novel is dark and violent and ultimately heartbreaking. Michael Ferris-Smith starts our interview talking about his method of writing. No matter how busy I am or what I have going on or this and that and the other, I've got to get up and go to it every morning, even if it's only just for 30 minutes, just to keep the tool sharp. And when you have a story going, anything you can put into it really snowballs that story forward and helps propel it forward. I'd love to have three or four hours a day to sit and work. Well, I say that. I don't know if I would or not. I think it's been part of my um, success or energy or whatever you want to call it or motivation that I sit down and I work really hard in the spurts that I can get. And I I think some of that propulsion probably comes out in the writing. Where does the initial idea come from? Where's the spark that you say, oh, I want to write a book about this? When I get done with something, I don't necessarily sit down and start trying to think, okay, well, what do I want to do next? I really just kind of let go. And just in the course of living and being and watching and observing, something will hit me. I mean, with Blackwood, I had kind of a landscape first. For some reason, and I guess it's because of what I see in North Mississippi or really anywhere in Mississippi all the time, but I think especially up here in the hill country, I've just seen the kudzu and just how it is just taking over everything. And I just had this image in my mind of like this huge kudzu-covered valley and maybe um, a little town that sits on the edge of it. And, you know, when I was a kid, we used to go up under the vines, and I just started to imagine almost like a ghost story or a ghost tale of what might be going on underneath this valley of vines. Kudzu sounds like it is an actual character in the book. It is absolutely a character, and I think that was one of the very interesting things for me in writing about it, is I felt it come alive. And the characters, too, they feel it, too. I think the notion of its incremental growth and how patient it is and how over time it just chokes out everything. I think you feel that in the story, and I think it certainly is part of what's going on with the characters and their lives and the parallels to um, kind of what they're feeling on the edge of this valley. Well, give us an idea of that. Tell us about the characters and how the kudzu, well, it's actual, but it's also, in a sense, metaphorical in this book. Yeah, absolutely. Um It is metaphorical. I mean, there's a host of characters, really, but um, I guess the main couple or three is Colburn, who has something very bad and memorable happen to his father and with his family, and him and his mother left, but it picks up 20 years later when he's coming back and he's curious. He's almost like a a morbid celebrity in this town in that, I mean, we all know how little towns are. Stories tend to be told over and over and over again, and the story of his family is one that everybody in the town knows. So when he shows back up, they already kind of know who he is, and he's already kind of strange to them. Uh, so you've got this very strange physical world and this creeping physical world, and then Colburn shows back up, and it kind of disrupts you know, kind of that everyday, everything's the same type feeling in this little town. Blackwood has been described as Southern Gothic. Is that how you would refer to it? Yeah, I suppose. I mean, it's Southern Gothic, among other things, too. But I certainly think it's very influenced by those influences of mine who really live in the Southern Gothic realm, like William Gay and Cormac McCarthy's earlier novels especially. I think Ballad of the Sad Cafe, uh, Carson McCullers probably had a pretty good influence on this novel, too. 
What is the genre, though? Is it a thriller? It's very dark. What genre would you say it's in? See, I don't know. It's funny to me to see all the categories it ends up in. I've seen it in Southern Gothic. I've seen it in literary thriller. I think it will get some horror-type reviews in, in, in within the horror genre. Um, it's called a crime novel. But it's really weird because one of the earlier interviews I've done also, the interviewer said to me, you know, I've read all your work, and I feel like this is your most religious work. And I thought, well, that's really interesting. <laughs> I just, you know, I, I think those things show up in all of my work because of my background. I was, like, really taken by that. The only category I hope it falls into is great. You know, I can't do anything about anything after that. Um <laughs> But I think those are some pretty good genres to be in. What would you tell our listeners, or what do you want to leave them with about why they should get this book? Oh, man. You won't forget it. I can promise you that. Good enough. Michael Ferris-Smith is the author of Blackwood. Michael, thank you so much. Absolutely, Karen. Thanks a lot. And Michael Ferris-Smith will be signing Blackwood at Square Books in Oxford on Tuesday, March 3rd, and Thursday, March 5th at Lemuria Books in Jackson. Thanks for listening to the Mississippi Edition podcast from MPB News and MPB Think Radio. Don't forget to subscribe if you haven't already. And if your app lets you, leave a comment or review. We really do appreciate it. Remember, you can always get in touch with MPB News on Facebook and Twitter. And fresh episodes of the podcast are posted every weekday morning. I'm Karen Brown. Thanks for listening. This is Mississippi Edition from MPB Think Radio.